Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. This session with Kitty Flanagan was recorded at the 2018 festival. She chats to Meredith Jaffe about the cautionary tales in her new book, Bridge Burning and Other Hobbies. <clears throat> wow, this is so weird. When I do stand-up, we have the audience in the dark. So I can stand up here and pretend I'm, woo, I'm killing, everyone's loving it, but not tonight. I can actually see your faces. If anyone's bored, I'm just going, oh, that person's bored. All right, I've lost them over there. So this is uh, freaking me out already. <laughs> Although, Although scared, we don't Meredith, have the chicken you. wire thing happening either. So if anyone is carrying a I don't work at the zoo, Meredith. What do you mean? <laughs> I don't work in front of that kind of... beer cans and all that stuff. Or is that just I musicians? I theatres, Meredith. <laughs> I don't work in... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Now, you did, like a lot of us in life, I, when I was reading Kitty's book, it's pretty, pretty common for a lot of us to finish school and go, I have no idea what to do with myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were not unusual in that respect, and you no. thought going to university would be a great idea. Um, but that wasn't really your um, calling because... I just thought it was mandatory. I thought you just finished school and then you went to uni. That's what you did. I wish now that I'd left in year 10 and become a cabinet maker. That would have been so much more useful. <laughs> I just think cabinet makers are magical. Don't you? They just do the most magical things. They're like magicians. I would trade sexual favours for, like, <laughs> cabinet making skills. I just think they're amazing. But... Um, yeah, I just left and, and thought I'll go and do communications at UTS. Oh, but at UTS God. wasn't even UTS then. That was the no, problem. No, it was UTS, well, no, but, no, it, but was it, just, wasn't it was just one building. office building. Mm. So you used to go to uni while all your friends were up at Sydney having, you know, beautiful quadrangles, and I was going to an office building <laughs> and going, oh, excellent, I'm on floor 23 today. That's a... <laughs> That's a really good floor. And then the other thing was most of UTS was made up of engineers. Um, it's all engineering. So all the... I'd, I'd been hoping for a social life when I went to university. <laughs> because I went to an all-girls school and so I thought, oh, uni, I'm finally going to meet boys. And just went, oh, all engineers, you know. <laughs> And so basically I was doing a course that was 80% mature age students. So it was 80%, you know, women who were really interesting, like now, if I talk to them, but then, oh, fuck off, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wanting to discuss the fucking lecture we just had. It's like, oh, can't we go to a bar like everyone else? <laughs> now I think I would really love that course. I could go and do that course and really annoy the school leavers that are there. But <laughs> at the time, it was just disastrous. I think I lasted about... I went for about six months, but of that six months, I really only turned up for about six weeks, I think. And then I was just saying to my mum every morning, off to, off to uni. And it just got more and more, you know, that if you ever hear this from your kids... Oh, I've got no lectures today. Yeah, it's bullshit. <laughs> and my mum used to go, it's amazing how the days you have no lectures seems to change every week. I went, I know, they just keep changing my schedule. <laughs> so, but it got, it you know, you didn't give up on tertiary education. You did decide you're going to be a phys ed teacher. Yeah, I had that another career highlight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I was thinking there. I, um, I believe your mother says something like, I give it a month. Well, look, my mum, my mum's terrific. Um, I mention her quite a bit in the book because she has quite a realistic attitude to parenting. She's not like a parent of today. Um, she's... <laughs> well, she's not. Like, you know, even when I was born, she kind of looked at me and went, oh, that's freaking me out a bit, that... Uh... 
<laughs> that bald baby with black eyes. <laughs> because I was bald until I was about two. Then I really made up for it. But um, I was bald till about I was about two, and I walked unnaturally early. So and I was very small. So my mum used to sort of, you know, come out from the bathroom, and there I'd be just like this little. <laughs> devil child just walking around bald with these black beady eyes and she actually said to me when I was older she said at one stage I thought you were a witch's familiar which is like a it's like a minor demon that assists a witch and that's what she's she said I just had that look she said you just looked like you'd been here before or something she said I'd catch you staring at me with your beady eyes so <laughs> so she what I'm saying is she was very pragmatic and she sort of she saw things for what they were. Like if I would come home from school and say, oh, you know, the teacher was really mean and she did this, and my mum would say, well, what did you do? She wouldn't say, well, I'm going to go up and I'm going to have a word to that teacher because you're amazing. She'd go, well, you've been... <laughs> yeah. She'd say, and what did you say? And I'd go, oh, nothing. And she'd go, well, what did... No, hang on, let's just walk it back a bit. Yeah. She didn't just have a go at you for no reason. It's like, oh, all right, yeah, all right. But so when I came round and said, right, I've decided I'm going to go to university and be a PE teacher, she laughed in my face. <laughs> Absolutely laughed in my face. She just went, <laughs> I give it a month. And because she said that, and because I'm so perverse, I stuck at it for nine months. <laughs> but I, I, knew what was in the, I knew I was in the wrong place on the first day, but I went, I am going to show my mum. <laughs> I am going to become a PE teacher just to spite her. What is wrong with me? <laughs> so that is obviously, it's that kind of behaviour that I think led to the title of the book as well. That is how, if I could have called the book Cutting Off My Nose to Spite My Own Face, <laughs> I would have fit that. But yeah, bridge burning and other hobbies pretty much sums up. Just, just to prove that, well, I, this is another one. I did, um, I did art. I took art as my elective at um, high school because everyone said to me in Year 7, oh my God, you are so going to do drama. You are going to do drama. I went, oh, fuck it, am I? Am I? <laughs> well, guess what? You don't all know me because I'm going to do art. I was shit at art <laughs> for six years, but Jesus Christ, I showed him, didn't I? <laughs> well, I think... What an idiot. You, 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 you know, you climbed the ladder, though. I mean, you went mm. from dropping out of uni, dropping out mm. of PE education to mm. Pizza Hut as yeah. a waitress. And do you know what was the first thing I was actually good at? <laughs> I was really good at, as, as a Pizza Hut waitress, except for the... And look, the reason I was really good, I probably wasn't that good, but I... <laughs> but I used to tell every single person that came into the Pizza Hut that it was my first night, so they all thought I was brilliant. <laughs> so if I dropped anything or I made a mistake, I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, it's my first night, and everyone would be so nice, and I'd get lots of tips. And then, then I, yeah, until the time that I dropped a, actually did drop a lasagna down a man's back. And, um, but, you know, I just didn't feel that bad because what are you doing ordering lasagna at the Pizza Hut? <laughs> Seriously, people, if you're ever thinking about it, I've seen what's it, don't order the lasagna at the Pizza well, Hut. Did you work there when they still had the little gingerbread men and do all that? Do they not that? have them anymore? Oh, do they? Does anyone go to Pizza Hut? I don't think anyone goes to Pizza Hut. It's it doesn't Domino's even exist and anymore. It's artisan pizza and wood fire stuff Is there now, a Pizza Hut? There's not, is there? But, but you remember the little... There was the surfboards. Pizza Pete. There was, there was the KFC surfboards. There was the Pizza Pete <laughs> green T-shirts with the pizza guy. And there was the little gingerbread oh. men. Pizza Pete. We weren't allowed to have KFC. 
That was one of my mum's rules. We'd, we were allowed to have McDonald's or pizza, <laughs> but we weren't allowed to have KFC. I don't know why. My mum went away once for a week and my dad was left looking after us. And he said, what do you want for dinner? And we all just begged him, just went, please, can we have Kentucky Fried Chicken? Please, because we'd never been allowed to have it. And we were all sick as dogs the next day. <laughs> <laughs> and once again, my mum couldn't have been happier. <laughs> so your restaurant career is ticking along a little bit. And then, yeah. you know, but like most young people, of course, we're cash poor and we're desperate <coughs> for the next dollar and all that kind of stuff. And there's, an ad, there's a day waitressing job that comes up that catches your eye, you thought, yeah. that money just sounds amazing. Yeah, I, I was waitressing at the Pizza Hut and, like I said, you know, I, I had it down. I was pretty good. And the other thing is, when you waitress at the Pizza Hut, I don't know if you've, any of you have got kids that work in a fast food place, but my God, those uniforms, the stink of the fat. Like when they mm. come home and they just have, the uniform has to go straight in the wash. So I was looking to, you know move up a bit in the world. And I saw an ad that was offering, it was about double, I think, the rate that I was getting at the Pizza Hut, and it was in a fancy restaurant, and I thought, oh, well, I'm pretty good at waitressing now. I'm going to apply for this, because I think I deserve that money. And so I rang up, and the guy asked me if I was willing to do businessmen's lunches. And I went, well, sure, I mean, businessmen have got to eat. And uh, oh, so naive. Of course. I mean, they're working all day. They're businessmen. They've got to stop and have a break and have some lunch. Sure, I'll do a businessman's lunch. And I still hadn't twigged that there was anything wrong. And so I turned up for the interview. And it was only once I was sitting there at the interview. I honestly thought they were offering more money because it was a fancy restaurant where they charged lots of money and they were just good people that wanted to pass those profits on to their waitresses. <laughs> what world do I live in? But I turned up and it wasn't until the man said that he would need to see my lingerie before <laughs> to approve it. And I kind of went, what? And he said, oh, well, we, you know, we don't want anything slutty. <laughs> don't you love it when morally bankrupt people take the high ground like that? You know, I mean, we're all for having ladies semi-nude, but nothing slutty, nothing slutty. <laughs> so I kind of went, oh, right. And then he said he'd need to approve the lingerie and that there were two things I could... Um, I could do, I could either be, I could just do standard lingerie waitressing, <laughs> classy, um, <laughs> or I could also, as on top of that, if I wanted to make more money, I could be a sitter. <laughs> and, <I> just, <laughs> and by this stage, I mean, I knew I wasn't going, but I just thought, I've got to know what a sitter is, right? <laughs> so I said, oh, do tell, sir. Um, and he said, well, again, it's nothing slutty. No, of course it isn't. <laughs> No, why would I think that? Um, he said, if you're a sitter, you just have to sit on the businessman's knee <laughs> during dessert and you, you feed him his chocolate oh. mousse. <laughs> no it's hashtag just, me too just, then. Just so, just so <laughs> repulsive. And I just, you know, I think in the end I just had to say, look, it's not for me because I just, you know, I've got a thing about food. I just can't have, you know... <laughs> I can't have assholes around my food. And, <laughs> and let's be clear, I'm talking about the men, not the women there with their G-strings on. But, yeah, so I, I, didn't even, I didn't even do a day at, uh, at the fig, the oh, fancy well. fig. Interestingly enough, another theme in the book is you and your boyfriends, your way... If we're dispensing life advice this evening, Kitty, life <laughs> advice from Kitty on breaking up with boyfriends. Not. Well... I, what was interesting for me was when I got 
to the, when I sort of read over the book once I'd written it, and I was actually surprised how many boyfriend stories I had in there because for me, um, you know, if you're at all familiar with my work, I do tend to present as, you know, the lonely lady with booze as my friend. But um, it was really surprising how many boyfriends I'd actually <laughs> had and, and broken up with. And not always, like, it was good too because I kind of realised, because at the time, you know, when you're in a relationship and you break up and you sort of tend to think, oh my God, you were such an asshole to me and I'm such an amazing person and you were the asshole. And when I was sort of writing about these stories and coming back over, I was able to look at it like, you know, with a bit of hindsight and go, wow, I think I was an asshole too. <laughs> like, and I could see that I always had a role in it. Like, they weren't necessarily great, but I wasn't either. And I would have to say that there's only one story in the book where... I feel like, you know, I remember it's a story about when I travelled to South America with a boyfriend and um, we, it, it, was, it was horrific. Like, it was just horrific from start to finish. And, and we came back to Australia and I remember he said to me, you know, we'll look back on this one day and find it really funny. And that was 25 years ago and I still fucking don't find it funny. <laughs> and... He is the only person in the book, like everyone else, you know, I kind of wanted to be fair and be measured and kind of think, well, I had a hand in it as well. But with him, it was like, I'm fucking having a go. I've waited 25 years to have my say. <laughs> and here it is. <laughs> but then, but, but then everyone else, I could kind of see my own. But looking back 25 years on, I just went, no, nah, I still say it was all his fault, not mine. Let's be blunt, you could have been very dead and not be the Kitty Flanagan we know today. But there were others. There was Catch Brazy Joe, yep. who in, 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 you know, inadvertently also had a role in your career. Um, yeah, a lot of my friends who've read the book have actually asked me, because, you know, most people that know you want to read the book to see, firstly, if they warrant mm. a mention, um, and secondly, see who they can spot within the book. It's amazing how most people can't actually spot themselves, which is quite good. <laughs> but most of my girlfriends have all said to me, who was Catchphrasey Joe? None of them can pick who he was. And I think it's because even when we first started going out, I was so ashamed of him that I never wanted to... I never introduced him to anyone. Even my mum said, who's Catchphrasey Joe? And I went, God, I didn't even introduce him to my mum. So, look, he was actually... The only reason I don't feel bad about having a go at him in the book is when I looked back on it, I just went... Jesus Christ, I was about 22 and he was 33. What in God's name was he doing going out with a 22-year-old? I mean, come on. He deserves everything he gets. So the reason I couldn't bear going out with him, like at first it was kind of fun, you know, he was 11 years older than me and it was like, wow, he's so fancy. Olives? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'd usually eat twisties, but let's have some olives. <laughs> French champagne? Okay, I was going to say Midorian lemonade, but sure, let's have some French champagne. Oh, oh can, I, can I put some Midori in it? Um, but he... So he was kind of, I guess, a little intriguing at first, but he had... He used to have catchphrases, and he would use them all the time, and I just don't think in life we need catchphrases. I mean, if, if you're a character on a sitcom from the 80s, hey, knock yourself out, but... Whenever someone would say to him, hi, how are you? 
he would say, I'm fine, mild and 27 degrees. <laughs> and the first time, the first time someone says that, you go, <laughs> and like the 43rd time someone says that, you go, what is going on? And like even the first time he said it, I went like this. Oh. Like, so I can't imagine how anyone ever reacted in a way that made him go, ooh, that killed, I'll do that again. <laughs> so, I mean, like, if he'd said something and the whole, you know, people just go, oh, best thing I've ever heard, sure, keep rolling it out. But the best you can do for that is, eh. It's <laughs> all you're ever going to get. And he had a few others as well. I'm trying to remember what the other ones are, but they were just, I think I just blocked them from my mind. But, but can I just say that what's interesting, apart from that, is how he inadvertently changed your career trajectory because you tried to employ, let's face it, your tried and true method yeah. of breaking up and it kind of massively backfired. It was the first time I invented this method. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'd, I'd gone to meet him at a bar and uh, I was really planning to have a Midorian lemonade and uh, <laughs> I wasn't, I, I wasn't drinking that. I gave that up at 19. Um, <laughs> I... Went to, I was thinking, look, I don't, I don't want to go out with him anymore. I just don't want to go out with him anymore. And then the woman behind the bar said, oh, hi, guys, how are you? And he said, fine, mild and 27 degrees. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, I so don't go. Kill I can't now. do it. Yeah. And so I said, I was about to say, I think we should break up. And I just, you know, it's really hard to break up with someone. Like, even now it's hard. But when you're 20, you've got no experience of how to break up with people and you don't want to be mean. No one ever wants to be mean and no one ever wants to be unkind to someone. Like, I mean, I'll sit here in front of 400 people and go, oh, yeah, I'll be unkind as I like, but not to his face, you know. <laughs> so I said, I think I'm moving to Western Australia. <laughs> And, I just, and I, it literally just came to me. Like, I just went, do you know what? If I move, we can't go out. And if I move somewhere far enough, like WA, you can't even have a long-distance relationship. That's too far to try and keep that relationship going. So I just said, I'm moving to Western Australia. And then, oh, didn't he have the questions for me? Oh, why? It's like, oh, I don't know. I just made it up now. Um, <laughs> So I had to start thinking of things. I was, you know, just improvising, which isn't my best, you know, work. And I said, oh, oh, because... And then I remembered, you know, he'd been telling me about getting into radio and copywriting. And he said, you know, if you ever want to do it, because that was his industry, and he said, if you want to do it, you should probably move to a country radio station and that's where you get your start, you know, and you um, start from the ground up and then work your way back up to city stations. So I said, yeah, well, I'm going to get a job in a country radio station. He went, well, I didn't mean Western Australia. I meant, like, you know, Gosford. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I just said, uh, you know, and he said, why, have you got a job lined up already? It's like, oh, my God, the questions. <laughs> Stop with the questions. So I went, oh, yeah, I've sent off some letters. <laughs> I was honestly just pulling stuff out of my ass. How will you ever believe me? And what really amazes me, though, is that we sort of went, okay, well, it's been lovely, but now I'm moving, so we have to break up. I didn't have to actually move. Like, I could have just a week later said, oh, well, I changed my mind. I'm not going, I, I went. <laughs> uh, method acting. <laughs> moved to WA. What an idiot. 
<laughs> and got there and eventually I did get a job in a country radio station and then a couple of years later when I was done with WA I decided, well I wasn't done with WA, I was actually done with the guy I was going out with. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, oh I'm really sorry but I'm moving back to Sydney. And he said, oh awesome, I've always wanted to move to Sydney. And I just went, <laughs> hoisted on my own petard. So I had to actually let him, and again, what an idiot, I should have just told him, hey, I don't want to go out with you anymore. I let him up and move to Sydney, and then, I know, I'm a terrible person. But look, he went on to have a much better career in Sydney than he would. I, I did him a favour. I broke up with him a week after he got here, but I just, <laughs> I did him a favour. You had other career highlights apart from your career in country radio stations writing advertising copy mm. for the Roebuck Hotel. Yeah. Do you remember the, how that copy used to go? I noticed yeah. you are wearing a white shirt yourself this evening, so semi-appropriate. I, I used to, when I got a job in a country radio station in Western Australia, which is about as country radio station as you can get, I used to, it was a, it wasn't even a proper radio station, it was a satellite radio station, which was this weird thing they'd invented, which makes perfect sense now, but at the time it was quite ahead of itself. Um, it was just me and one other woman, and it broadcast over the, all of Western Australia, but because obviously Western Australia is so huge, it's no point playing an ad for the local butcher in Bunbury up in Broome. So the other woman, her job was to program all the different ads to fire off at different times in different areas. I wrote all the ads for all the things and she did all the programming. And she did it way before any you know, proper computer things. She used to do it all on spreadsheets. She was quite the human algorithm and very boring. But anyway, um, <laughs> but I used to have to write all the ads and I wrote a lot of ads for the Roebuck Bay Hotel, which, and yeah, I'm a bad person because I'd been to the Roebuck Bay Hotel. I'd travelled around Australia and I had been to the Roebuck Bay Hotel in Broome and I don't know what it's like now. It might be a really nice establishment but it was all wet t-shirt competitions and, you know, jugs of beer and backpackers and, it, it was, and I used to write ads like that was a great thing to get people on down, you know, get on down and drinks are free for women if you take your top off. Oh, come on. <laughs> I was hashtag me tooing myself. I mean, what a dreadful person to not, to not just go to them and say, do you know what, I'm not going to promote that. That's a dreadful thing. I just went, oh, right, well, this will get people in, won't it? <laughs> it, was, it was late 80s. You were still quite young too. I'd never do it now. Of course not. You were still quite young too because you actually truly believed those ads that say that um, you can earn $1,000 a week. Yeah. Yeah? And that was, that um, was it, your other great career high well, that was in while Western I was, Australia. Yeah, that was while I was backpacking around... Uh, so this is before the advertising before career? I, well, yeah, because that's why I said I would go to Western Australia because I thought he can't catch me out because I'm familiar with it because I'd backpacked and I knew a lot of WA. So when I said I'm moving to WA, I thought I know all the places. He can't catch me out and go, where I go? Uh, Geraldton. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. And um, so I, when I was backpacking around, I was in Perth and one of the other backpackers said, um, you can earn $1,000 a week up in Geraldton, and I went, can I have my clothes on, or is this going <laughs> to be like the fancy fig restaurant? And they said, yeah, it's working in the crayfish factory, and I thought, okay, well, no one's going to be dumb enough to be nude at the crayfish factory, are they? <laughs> That's some pretty spiky creatures. 
no one's going to take the top off and work with those. So I thought, all right, well, that sounds great. I'll do that. So I got on a bus seven hours later, get off in Geraldton, go and get myself a job at the crayfish factory. And you can. You can earn $1,000 a week there. But the catch is you have to work 90 hours a week to get that $1,000. <laughs> so basically you work round the clock while the crayfish are coming in. They have to be processed. They, they can't be any pause. You can't just leave them sitting out the back in the sun. <laughs> and go, oh, I'm just knocking off for 12 hours. <laughs> so you have to work like around the clock. So basically you'd work for, at the beginning of the season, you'd work for 22 hours and then go home for a couple of hours and then come back. And so it's all, they just get the backpackers and the young people to do it. And the sensible local people, you know, just have the jobs where they box things up and all the idiots come in going, oh, I can get $1,000 a week. And we last about two or three weeks and that's all they need us for because by then the you know, the season has slowed down a bit and they're not coming in at such a great rate. And so we all kind of leave and the local people just continue with their regular jobs. But I was a crayfish washer because that's the job they give to the, the idiots. <laughs> the locals sit up and they do the wrapping and the boxing and they're not down in gumboots washing things. So what happens is... Um, if you've ever worked in a crayfish factory, I don't know, I don't want to tell you your business, but <laughs> what happens is the crays all come in off the boat, they get tipped into a giant vat of um, fresh water first, so they just start to slowly drown a bit. And then once they've kind of stopped thrashing around, I know, it's lovely, they then tip them into a vat of boiling water. Then they start thrashing again and they really, they quite literally shit themselves in there. Who wouldn't? And <laughs> so my job, once they come out of the boiling water, I had a hose and you grab a crayfish off the pile and you just, you hose it off. Then you put it on the conveyor belt and it goes off to be boxed and wrapped by the people who actually know what they're doing. And I just, you know, you just stand on a line, hosing. That's easy. And so I just would stand there hosing and talking to the person next to me going, oh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And the foreman would come down to me and say, hey, you can't talk while you're working. And i go, Phew. I think I can, watch me. <laughs> <laughs> and he warned me and he warned me and then he said, okay, you're going to do 15 in the freezer. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> and he said, get in the freezer. And they had like a giant freezer storage thing for where once the crays are all boxed up, then they get put in deep freeze. And so that's where I was, standing amongst <laughs> all the frozen crayfish. Cool thinking, hand Luke. Yeah, yeah. thinking this is, this is... I felt more like... Um, remember Peter and Greg and the Brady Bunch, that episode where they got locked in Sam's meat locker? <laughs> um, but there was no window. I even looked around. Is there a window that I can smash and crawl through like Bobby did? But there wasn't. <laughs> and so I was stuck in this freezer, and he came back after 15 minutes and said, are you ready to come out and get back on the line and stop talking? And I went, oh, excuse me and he just shut the door and I went oh my god <laughs> I just never learn and honestly I was like the you know hitting the electric fence bzz, bzz, bzz. <laughs> he came back three times and three times I just went nah, nah. and after 45 minutes in the deep freeze the next time he opened the thing I couldn't even speak anymore it's just like <laughs> came out and just like stood there like over the steaming pile of crayfish going oh nice <laughs> so toasty warm but yeah I just I don't again I can't I can't look back at that and think, what a terrible thing. All I can think is, it really solved the problem. <laughs> you know, like, he didn't have to write three letters to HR. I didn't have to get any <laughs> warnings. You know, it wasn't like I had to be managed out. 
in 45 minutes he had solved the problem and shut me up. <laughs> and I think everyone on the line was probably quite grateful. <laughs> Eventually you found your metier, but even that was by accident. You're working in a pub, they've got an open mic night. Oh, yeah. And Look, then, you know, finally it's no more crayfish, no more Pizza Hut Pete's, no more no. PE teaching. It's suddenly something drove you to get up on that stage yeah, and I, try your hand at stand-up. What, what were you thinking? It was unemployment that drove me there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it was. No, it literally, it genuinely was because I'd, I'd been working in advertising and, uh, and I'd lost my job <laughs> again. And... Um, and again, I just, I just don't blame them. You know, I look back now at what I was doing and just think, what in God's name? Well, like, these were big clients. Like, one of my clients was, um, I called them Nestles, but apparently now you call it Nestle. I yeah. was, did you think it was Nestles? I thought it was yeah. Nestles for years. Yeah. And um, so one of, that was one of my clients. I was a 23-year-old copywriter. I mean, how much money have they got and they're just like giving me hundreds of thousands of dollars, not personally, but like the agency, and saying, here is a budget to go and write an ad to sell chocolate quick to children. I'm d I don't know what I'm doing. I wrote some stupid jingle about a spaceship and the mothership has brought the milk. <laughs> and it was just, you know, and the whole reason that we wrote the ad like that was because my art director and I said, if we do a space theme, we'll be able to get all these really cool, like, little spaceship things made, and then we'll be able to keep one each. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's just irresponsible to let 23-year-olds have that much money to do that sort of thing with. So I lost my job, and again, I don't blame them. And I remember my art director and I both um, went down to the Dole office, because he said, oh, we've, we've been retrenched, so we're allowed to go on the dole. And I went, oh, okay. And so I just went along, and I stood there, and I was in that queue for about 20 minutes, and I just said to him, oh, my God, I'm so depressed. I can't, I can't be here. I, I can't do this every whatever you've got to come in here for every two weeks. I'm just going to lose the will to live. I said, I'm going to the pub to get a bar job. So I just walked down the road and just got a bar job and then thought, I'm just going to try stand-up once. I was just going to try it once to get it out of my system. I thought, if I just get it out of my system, I'll, I won't get to 40 and think, oh, I wonder what could have happened if I'd ever done stand-up. And so I rang up the um, Harold Park Hotel, which was where they did open mic on a Monday nights, and it was actually Gretel Colleen who was just in here. She and her husband used to own that pub or run the um, room down there. And she answered the phone and I said, oh, I want to come down and... I didn't know it was her at the time, but I said, I want to come down and do stand-up. And she said, oh, great. She said, we're having a competition tonight um, and we never get any women, so please come down. And I immediately freaked out and went, oh, no, no, I can't go in a competition. I've never done it before. And she begged me. She said, please come down. We never have enough women doing it. And I went, oh, oh all right. So I agreed to do it. And then I rang my sister and I said... I've decided I'm going to have a go at stand-up. I didn't even watch much comedy. Like I, don't, I really didn't. You know, I watched the big gig, but I didn't go and... I'd never been to the Harold Park Hotel before, except the week before. I went down once to have a look and see how it worked. 
And that week that I went down, there were 12 people in the audience. Every single comedian died. I heckled, <laughs> which is outrageous behaviour. I would never heckle in my life. I was sitting there amongst 12 people. I think I even just heckled like this. Boo! I booed someone. <laughs> and from that, for some stupid reason, I thought, oh, yeah, I might have a go at that. <laughs> so I rang my sister and I said, I'm going to go down and have a go at stand-up. And she went, ooh, ooh. Um, she said, well, you better come round to my house and show me what you're going to do. So I remember at 4 o'clock that afternoon, I went round to her place and performed for her in her living room. And thank God I did, because she just sat there stony-faced. <laughs> and so I just had to keep adding things until she started laughing. And if, if I hadn't done it there first, and it's so much harder, can I tell you, it's so much harder to perform in front of one person <laughs> than it is in front of... And I was lucky. There were 200 people that night. So I just... I always put it down to it was just sheer luck of right time, right place. Because if I'd decided to do it the week before, I would have died like everybody else because there were 12 people in the audience. The week I turned up, there were 200 people. It was a competition, so great people were on, like Carl Barron was on. He'd started doing it about six months before me. Um, we had a professional MC in the form of Ross Daniels, who I don't know if you remember him, but he was just one of the biggest things on the scene. So it was just this huge, massive night. So even if you weren't great, you were going to do okay. Whereas the week before, even if you were really good, you were probably going to die on your hole. It, just, it, was just, it was sheer luck that it went well, I performed the entire thing with my hands on my hips looking up at the ceiling because I was so nervous. But apparently everyone thought I looked really confident because I stood behind the microphone like this. And the reason I was doing that is because my hands were shaking so much that I had to put them somewhere because I just I can't stand up there going... <laughs> so it just, yeah, it went really well that first night and it was like a, it was like a drug. I was just addicted to it. I just went, I, ha I have to do it again. It was the best thing ever. But the weirdest thing to me... You know, we go through this journey with you in this book, all this wonderful career um, that you've had, and you get to this and you do this open mic thing and you go, oh, epiphany, this is suddenly something that, you know, fires for me. You were three when you had your first moment of being starstruck and a moment of stardom. Your mother, the ever pragmatist, might have, you know, kiboshed your performance career. Your father, of course, did not. So how come it took you so long to go from the... Viella ad at age three to realising at the Harold Park that you might have had something. Tell us a little bit about your first taste of stardom. Well, it was I was cast in an ad because um, your father was in the because my dad was in yeah. advertising because that's how it used to happen. It wasn't there were no such thing as agents for kids then. It was basically someone would walk around an advertising agency and say, "Does anyone have a kid? <laughs> I'm doing an ad. Who's got a kid? Anyone?" And I think my dad just got sick of them yelling, so he went, yeah, I've got one. And uh, he said, what do you need? And they said, oh, I don't know, what about this big? What's that, three, seven? I don't know. <laughs> what have you got? And dad said, yeah, I've got one that's three. So I went and did an ad um, for a fabric called Viella. I don't know if you remember Viella. It's certainly a thing that I think anyone under 40 probably would have no idea about, but it was, it was a beautiful fabric. It was a blend of wool and cotton. Oh, all the warmth of wool with the breathability of cotton. <laughs> but um, <laughs> tell you what, those girls on The Bachelor could use a bit of Viola. Oh, <laughs> those polyester fabrics. God, the stink must be dreadful on that set. But 
I was casting this ad just because my dad was in advertising and, and they had, it was like a mother-daughter thing, we wore these matching dresses. And, and can I be honest with you, I don't remember this ad at all. What I remember seeing is the photograph. I saw a photograph that had me in a matching dress with this woman who was this quite glamorous, beautiful woman with long, dark hair, and she was in a matching dress. And I sort of asked my mum, I said, oh, who's that? And she said, oh, that was your fake mum for the day. Like, <laughs> so we were like mother and daughter. And it was a kind of a weird thing, because I would always think, like, why didn't they ask my mum to be in the ad? Because my mum looked a lot more like me. <laughs> and I also thought, and, I, and she was quite glamorous too. She was 70s glamorous, because my mum had her kids really early. I think she had me when she was 22 or 23. So, you know, she would have been one of those people now that you go, oh my God, what did you do to get your fab bikini bod back? And it's like, nothing, had my kids at 22, when your body's like rubber, bounce, <laughs> straight back. Don't have to do anything. But this woman, I just, I remember always thinking they should have used my own mum because she would have laughed more normally. Because in the photo, the mum was laughing like this, because she was a model, so she knew how to do it, so she was laughing like this. <laughs> so it was this really weird photo of this woman going, and me. <laughs> but I obviously picked something up from this woman on the day, and after an entire day of being told that I was pretty fabulous and that I was beautiful, I came away from that ad thinking, well, I think I'm pretty fabulous. <laughs> and that was my whole demeanour now. And so after one day on a set, being told I was fabulous and pretty and beautiful, I really took that on board and <laughs> decided that that was my new thing. So whenever my dad, and my dad was quite a prolific photographer, and whenever he got the camera out, I would really give it something. <laughs> <laughs> and my parents had had enough of it, and they decided that one day on a set it turned me into a bit of a showbiz turd, and um, <laughs> they shut that shit down. There was no more... No more ads for me. And again, I want to credit my mum with that because she knew even then, like before it's, you know, it's a big thing now, but even then she knew it was really wrong for a little girl to constantly be told how beautiful and pretty she is. Like, it's not about being beautiful and pretty. Like, because you have to think about it, it's, it's, I didn't make myself beautiful and pretty. Like, that's, that was just luck of the draw that I was a cute three-year-old. And Christ, who isn't a cute three-year-old, you know? I feel like that's when I peaked. But, <laughs> <laughs> but to constantly be told, you're really pretty, you're really beautiful, it's, it's a really bad message. And I am really grateful that my mum stepped in at that moment and went, it's not going to happen. No more ads for you. No more showbiz. It's not the right thing. And now that I'm older and I work in the industry, I can see how difficult it is for children in the industry because... It's hard, to, it's hard to work with them without... Um, like, you can't be honest. You know, you can't say to them, oh, you're not doing great. Um, could you stop looking at the camera because you're really costing me money? You know, you have to just encourage them and you have to constantly tell them they're fabulous because that's going to get the best out of them. And sure, that works for you on a level of trying to get something good out of the kids, but I don't think it's necessarily a good thing for the kids to constantly be told that whatever they're doing is fabulous. It's like a dog doing the wrong thing but then still getting a treat. You're just reinforcing the bad behaviour. And I just think my mum was quite incredible to recognise that so early on <laughs> and just say, 
no more for you. That's it. Well, it's kind of in direct contrast to what happened with fast-forwarding, pardon the pun, Oh, and I'll just tell bit. you, there's no photos of me between the ages of three and four. Because whenever I started doing this, my dad would just put the camera away. And so there's a whole bunch of like family photos now that just have my sister. And she looks like she was an only child for a year, and she looks so happy, can I tell you? <laughs> she just looks thrilled. So we're fast-forwarding to your, your nascent comedy career at this point, and you think you've landed on your feet because you've got a gig in Singapore for four Ooh. weeks. And you talk about the fact that you had a problem with your overinflated ego at age three, but then it took you going to Singapore to find out that you had much worse health issues yeah. than you had ever, ever envisaged. And yeah. comedy was the least of your problems. Um, was, not um, many of us get to walk into a pharmacy to discover we are suffering from a condition as bad as MVS. Yeah, yeah. I, I took a gig in Singapore, um, which was a four-week stint at a comedy club, and I just thought I had made it. Like up until then, I'd been doing, you know, 15-minute spots at the local... There's only two in Sydney at the two local comedy clubs, and there wasn't that much work. And the only way you can get better at stand-up is to do it. You have to just get stage time. So to be given the opportunity to go to Singapore and work for four weeks, every night of the week, sometimes we were doing two shows a night, I thought, this is going to be great. Weirdest gig ever. Such a weird gig. Like, we weren't even performing to an audience. We were performing to people who were waiting to go and do karaoke upstairs. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Karaoke, like there were two levels and karaoke was so popular and all the Singaporeans, they just wanted to do karaoke. So they'd all go upstairs, be told there's no room, take a number and go and sit downstairs in the comedy club, <laughs> <laughs> which was empty except for me in the corner. Hello, how are you going? Uh, what you doing? Where you been? Oh, where, you, where are you from? Oh, upstairs at the comedy club. <laughs> um, and so all that was, you know, we didn't really have an audience. So it was quite a demoralising four weeks. Like it was week, night after night of just getting up, performing to no one <laughs> or performing to people. And then also they also had like an RSL type thing. You know how they have a speaker in an RSL where they announce the meals? You know, number 23, your chicken schnitzel's ready. Number 23, your schnitzel's <laughs> ready. They had that, but for the people who were waiting to do karaoke. So in the middle of your beat, you'd be going, oh, I'm coming up to the good bit now, I'm going to get a big laugh. And then you go, bang, bang, wow, bang, bang, bow, like, as they, like, <laughs> call people to go upstairs. <laughs> Sorry, that, that wasn't accurate. Um, <laughs> Cantonese. No, not accurate. But, but it, it, that's what it sounded like to me from the stage. But so I'd, I'd had a tough time and I, I didn't really get on with the other... It's not that I didn't get on with them, but we weren't great friends. Like, that's the other thing with being a female comedian is you tend to only... They never put more than one woman on the bill. I think it's, it's a little bit better now, but it does tend to be one woman per show. Like, it's as if an audience couldn't handle the fact if another woman came out and they go, shit, we've had one of those. <laughs> Why are there two? <laughs> so it's quite, it was quite usual to only work with men, and sometimes that's like, oh, I don't know, I just, you know. On the rare occasion I'd get to work with other women on the bill, it was so nice to, you know, just go, oh, let's hang out during the day and go and do some shopping or some really horrible stereotypical lady things. But it was fun, you know, to rather than just always be hanging with boys that you don't necessarily want to hang out with. And... So I wasn't hanging out with the boys, not that there was anything wrong with them, but they just they weren't my people. 
And so I was spending a lot of time on my own and, you know, the humidity in Singapore is just debilitating. And for someone with hair like mine, it's not a place you want to be. I just walked around looking like a human tumbleweed. <laughs> I'd go and eat my fried rice every day at the same cafe, this little place. I'd have fried rice and a pineapple juice. That was my standard. I'd get on the local bus, and I remember getting on the local bus, and this woman, like, and you're not supposed to catch the local buses. I didn't know that. No one told me that. But I kind of went, oh, well, they're only 60 cents. You should catch one. Don't catch the local buses. They don't want you on the local buses. Just catch the, you know, touristy transport. That's what they'd rather you were on. And this woman, I sat down next to this woman and she went like this. She went... (laughs) 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 And apparently it's because, um, in general, Western people smell of dairy. Like, we don't smell very nice because we stink of dairy, because we eat a lot of dairy compared to, like, an Asian diet. And I eat heaps of cheese. So I probably, like, I would have been to the max. I would have been, like, <laughs> Westerner squared, you know. <laughs> so, so I'd had that, and then I sort of thought, oh, God, I've got my tumbleweed hair. And I, I, I had very bad skin as well. I used to, I know, what a picture. <laughs> I told you, I peaked at three. But... I had quite bad acne and, I'd, and someone had told me that they have this product called, um, it's called Jamu and it, apparently it's a, Jamu is a herbal product that, but it's for lots of things. I didn't realise, like it comes in lots of different kind of formats, I guess. Um, and I had heard you could get some for your skin so I went into this local pharmacy on the local bus, stinky, and... Um, and I said to the man that I wanted um, some jamu for my skin. And he said, no, no, that's not what you want. And I'm not going to do the accent, even though I feel like I'd be entitled to because it's just an impression, but it would just sound racist if I did it. But what he said to me, he handed me a jar of stuff that was also jamu but in a different form, and he said, here, you take this because Western women have very big vagina." that's what he showed me (laughs) it's like "Mm, romper stomper bomber boo he said you take this make small (laughs) make husband happy I just, it was just, oh, I think, oh, I think I, oh, I didn't even contest it. All I, all I said, <laughs> all I said was, I don't have a husband. And, <laughs> and I could pretty much see the look on his face was going, well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> so it was just... It was just such a horrific day, and I ended up saying, no, don't worry, you know, I'll just... <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, personally, I don't think you've got enough, you know, because <laughs> it's going to take a lot of powder to get that down. But, um, and so I sort of I kept insisting that I wanted something for my skin. Eventually, he shrugged and went, all right, you know, massive vagina lady. Um, <laughs> old Enormo Fanny. Um, 
he gave me some pills for my skin and I went, okay, great. So I took these pills and I took them for about a week and then I finally got out the leaflet and I read them. God in heaven, I was taking pills that had armadillo testicles in them. Now, <laughs> I don't even object to the fact that I was eating armadillo testicles. That's not the thing that worries me. I, but I just, I realised I, I was part of the problem. I, I'm taking pills that's causing someone to go out and, and trust me, I don't think that they're just going out and knackering the armadillo and letting him go on. You know, I think they were killing those armadillos and then taking their balls off. So I just, I felt so terrible. It was like, oh, I'm eating armadillo nuts. I've got a huge fanny. I stink. <laughs> and, and remember, Kitty, you also had a moustache. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I, uh, yeah, and, and but, but, you know, that was kind of, so it wasn't even like, and then at night, I'd walk on stage and I'd slay him. Oh, I'll show you. I was dying there as well. It was just like, what a terrible, terrible four weeks. I came back and I thought, um, I, I went up and I did a gig at one of the local clubs and my sister came along to see it and she just took me aside afterwards and said, what's happened to your act? <laughs> I went, what do you mean? She said, um, you're basically just doing the first line and the last line from every story now. And I went, am I? And she went, yeah. And that's what had happened. Like over that four weeks, of just being ignored, I'd basically just gone, no point telling the story, let's just cut to the punchline. <laughs> cut to the punchline, cut to the punchline. <laughs> she said, I think you can put some stuff back in now. So. <laughs> now, we're about to throw the questions from the floor, so if you would like to ask Kitty a question, can you please make your way to the nearest oh. possible mic? And while we're waiting... I, I can probably hear you. If you've got a big enough voice, oh, you don't feel like you want to make Kitty, a scene. Kitty, sweetie, we're recording it. We need to have them for well, posterity. I don't think you are, because my manager didn't authorise that, and I've told a few stories <laughs> I didn't want to tell. <laughs> so there you go. Maybe they told, maybe they told me that to keep me on my. Maybe, maybe you're recording these people, but not me. <laughs> so if you do want to yell, I'll repeat your question. It's like being heckled. You always repeat the heckle, so. I just thought if, you know, if you're in the middle and you don't want to sort of push past people, because you've got to always make that decision, haven't you? Do I do bum first past people? Do I do fanny first? You know, it's just... <laughs> so if anyone does have a question, I'm happy to repeat your question. Have I got a nice fellow? You'll have to read my book to find that out. <laughs> it's the one thing I'm not prepared to actually talk about. Yes. Yeah. Where did that come from? If you didn't hear, she said you've explained all your jobs going through and then all of a sudden you decided you're going to try stand up. Where did that come from? Um, well, like I said, I lost my job. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, if I'm being perfectly honest with you, I was quite envious of my sister who was a musician. Uh, she was in a band back in the 90s called Club Hoy. And they had, you know, quite a sort of, um, you know, brilliant three years and then combusted like some young bands do um, but she also then went on and had a solo career as well and I used to go to her gigs and I would watch her and I would think oh and I mean she was very talented you know she sang and she played guitar and she wrote songs and I would sit there going oh, I wish I could be on stage but I don't have any skills <laughs> <laughs> I can't be bothered learning how to play guitar I can't be bothered learning how to sing what can I do that's really quick and stand-up is one of the few things you can do uh, with no skills, 
and no experience. And you can quite literally do what I did, which was ring up and say, can I come down, can I go on, I've never done this before. And you can hear the people go, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> Please do. So it was one of those things where I always knew I wanted to be on the stage, um, but I suppressed it. I really did. Throughout my high school years, I didn't, you know, I did art <laughs> instead of drama. But I always wanted to be an actor, but I knew I couldn't, I didn't have the emotional sort of maturity or depth to be an actor. I knew I only wanted to do funny acting because even when I did PE teaching, the best thing about the PE teaching was you had to take another... Um, you had to specialise in something else as well, so you'd be a PE slash something else teacher. And finally, I chose drama. Thank Christ I didn't choose art again. But, so I did drama for nine months at, uh, at Teachers College, and I, I just loved it, except when we had to do serious stuff, I could never do it. You know, if you had to do a serious monologue, I'd always come out and take the piss. So I knew I couldn't go to acting school, I couldn't, because I couldn't spend years being a tree or... <laughs> Melting like ice cream, or I just, I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't even do the kind of the warm-ups. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. I just, I just, just couldn't do it. So I was, I was genuinely looking for a way to get on the stage fast and without having someone um, have to give you their imprimatur. Like, if you're an actor... It just must be the most hellish job in the world because you are constantly waiting for someone else to give you the tap and say, we think you're right for this role. We only think you're right for this role. So why don't you come and try out for us and then we'll decide if you can have this role or not. It's like, my God, I couldn't take that much rejection. So if you're a stand-up, you write your own stuff, you get up, you do it. It's just, it's the simplest way to get on stage. It's also the simplest way to humiliate yourself. You've, there's, there's good and bad. But it was literally, how can I get on the stage? It's what I've always wanted to do. And I was just so lucky that doing that led me to the job which I'd always wanted, which was on um, Full Frontal. Because I grew up watching The Big Gig and Comedy Company and Fast Forward. And that was what I desperately wanted to do, to put wigs on and be stupid and do stupid voices. I went, how do you get that job? And I just fell into it. I did stand-up for six months and they were having a change of cast at Full Frontal and so they sent the producers around to comedy clubs and they literally picked me and Julia Morris out of a comedy club. So I, and we didn't know that they were there. If I'd known they were there, I probably would have done the worst gig ever because I would have been so nervous. But I just, so my whole career has been pure luck, you know, just from... I want to go on and do something. I want to be on the stage like my sister. I want some attention. She's getting too much attention. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I didn't have a grand plan. Just We've I want some attention. Time for a quick couple more questions. Has anyone got this one done here? I know. How did I get on the UK sketch show? It's a very good question. Um, oh, when is that in the timeline? Well... I did stand up here and then I did two years on Full Frontal where I wrote and performed in sketches. Uh, and then I left Full Frontal because I felt like I wasn't doing enough of my own sketches. And, but can I say, Full Frontal was just the best experience. I met some fantastic people that I'm still friends with now and it was just the best um, apprenticeship you could have for working in television because doing sketch is fast, 
It's there's no time to sit around and navel gaze and get into your character. It's like put that wig on and come out and do another funny voice. We've heard that one, do something else. So it's just, it's so fast. And we were turning out 24 episodes a year and they were one hour episodes. So it was a massively fast learning curve for me as well. And it was with great people. And then I left that because I wanted to do stand up and I floundered for quite a while because there's not a lot of stand up here. Um, I, I suffer a lot from. Um, nerves and and punishing myself if I did a bad gig I would just relive it over and over and over again in my head like and sometimes here because there's not that many gigs you can be two weeks or three weeks between gigs so I'd just be reliving the bad gig I'd done just every night just like oh my god why did I say that why did I do that oh why didn't I come back with this good thing for a heckler oh I wish I could ring them up and tell them because I've got a really good comeback now <laughs> Just over and over and over. And I finally realised, if I'm going to be a decent stand-up, I need to work every single night. And so I moved to the UK. And in the UK, there are so many comedy clubs. I was working four and five times a night. You can work seven nights a week. It's just the best. So if you're like me and you do a bad gig and you go, oh, God, and oh, hang on, I'm on again, right. And, <laughs> and the thing they always say is you're only as good as your last gig. So if you've just had a bad gig and you do another one five minutes later, great, it's all, that's it, the bad gig is forgotten. It was exactly what I needed and I'd been there for six months and um, they'd already done one series of the sketch show and one of their um, cast members was leaving and I happened to do a gig that night with uh, Lee Mack who was on the sketch show. We were doing a stand-up gig together and I got talking to him and he mentioned the sketch show and I mentioned I'd done sketch in Australia and he said, oh, why don't you send your... Um, you know, send the, you, have you got a showreel, send it to the producer. And I had so much on my showreel because I'd written it, I'd performed it, I'd done two years, you know, 26 episodes a year or whatever it was. So compared to anyone else who was sending in showreels to the sketch show, and they were in a hurry as well, they needed to replace someone in a hurry. So I looked like I was the most experienced person in the world, even though I'd only done it for a very short period of time. Um, I think they had no idea how much Australians churn out um, on television, it's true because we did eight episodes of the sketch show and it took six months. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> we had to write the sketches, then we had to perform them in front of a live audience and we had to hone the sketches and then we had to rewrite the sketches and then finally we'd get to record the sketches and we'd do one sketch every few hours. It was like, oh, come on! <laughs> God, with this money and this time, Australians would have churned out 40 more episodes. <laughs> but it was just, uh, yeah, once again, I was in the right place at the right time, and I just, yeah, I fluked it, really. And it was great, you know, because I'd learned my lesson this time around, and so it was like I'd had a whole rehearsal of my life in Australia by doing stand-up, then I got the sketch show. When I got the sketch show, I stopped doing stand-up because I thought, well, I'm a sketch person now, I don't need to do stand-up. Then I stopped doing sketch and I went, oh, I'm shit. <laughs> because if you don't keep doing stand-up, it's like sport, you get shit. You have to keep doing stand-up, you have to get up all the time, otherwise you lose it. You really do. So when I did the sketch show in the UK, not only did I know that if you're a woman and you want to get a sketch on, on a sketch show, you have to write it yourself. I knew that because I'd learned that lesson on Full Frontal. And I also knew that once I finished my sketch show every day, I had to go and do stand-up gigs. So I just, I didn't stop. I was just like, you know, just on the treadmill, just, just constantly doing it. And so it was just, I was so lucky to have rehearsed it all here first and then got to do it in, um, in the UK. 
I don't give short answers. Um, we, <laughs> sorry about that, I can see you glazing. Fucking hell, when is she going to end? <laughs> well, I, just, I just wanted to know what happened. And, you know, <laughs> all you had to say was I met Lee Mack at a stand-up gig. That would have done me. Oh. <laughs> but thanks for your history. <laughs> I'm trying to give stories that aren't in the book so you feel like you got something and you still need to get the book. It's like, oh, I haven't heard everything. Well, we've... The stupid thing is we've run out of time, so there's heaps of stuff that oh. we could have talked about that, oh. that is in the book that we have not covered, because they only gave us an hour. Oh. And so well, I'm afraid sorry, that... Sorry, <laughs> You have to save all your questions for when you're getting her to sign all those copies of the books for Mother's Day. Is, is there know, any that burning question that hasn't been no. answered Ooh. about my vagina or something? Sorry, no. sir. <laughs> that was bad timing, wasn't it? <laughs> No, if I've got an audience, I'm more than happy to, to, you know, to try and turn it on and, like I said, try and be funny. I won't be up myself and go, yeah, I'll come out and <laughs> be great. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's my job to try and be funny, but I'm so boring to go to dinner with. Oh, if I'm not being paid, forget it. <laughs> say to customs people, customs people always say that when you come through and I write comedian on my form and I do that because it took me so long to be able to write that because for years I had to have other jobs as well as, and so it was years before I was actually only making money from comedy and I went, you know what, I can finally now write comedian on the form when you leave the country and come back into the country but it's a double-edged sword because then you hand it in and the person goes, oh, comedian, eh? you tell us a joke and I go, give us ten bucks <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a professional. <laughs> You're going to have to save your questions for when you get Sorry, Kitty everybody. to sign your books. Can you please join me? If they could give Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much. And um, I know we have to get out. But can I just say thank you very much. I have to finish the floor. Thank well. you so much for having me. Um, Thank you for coming out. I've never done a writer's festival before, so it's absolutely lovely to be able to do my first one in Newcastle because I, I do love this uh, city and I especially love what you've done to the main street out there. Um, <laughs> brilliant. And uh, can I please thank Meredith as well for doing such a lovely job. And thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Kitty. Thank you. Honestly, I just had to wind her up and let it go. So Kitty will be out signing copies of her book in the foyer right now. So All I right. enjoy the rest of your festival <laughs> right now. Enjoy the rest of your festival. Hopefully I'll see you again tomorrow. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2018 Newcastle Writers Festival. Join us in 2019 from April 5 to 7 and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.